Welcome back. Thank you guys for coming. Once again, this is part 13 of Extremist Literature. And again, I'm still sick. I'm hoping I'll be over this soon. Uh, but either way, you know, I'm sure you guys will, will be okay with hearing my voice sound strange. I think my voice is getting stranger as time goes on, but I'm starting to feel better. Starting to get better, my voice just is, is weird. I don't know. So on the last one, we left off on a subheading titled, Jehovah's Enemies Received Furious Punishments. This is chapter 7 of, um, of the Pure Worship of Jehovah book, and this is paragraph 14. So let's give uh, 14 a read. It says, The Philistines, in italics and bolded, had migrated from the island of Crete to the land that Jehovah later promised to Abraham and his descendants. Both Abraham and Isaac had dealings with these people. By the time the Israelites entered the promised land, the Philistines had grown into a powerful nation with a formidable military force. They worshipped false gods such as Baalzebub and Dagon. Baalzebub, so it's B-A-A-L-Z-E-B-U-B. That's how they spelled it, Baalzebub. I'm wondering if they're, I, I'm wondering a lot about the root of that word and if Jehovah's Witnesses came up with it or if it's in the Bible or what, because that's kind of interesting. We may end up taking a look at that later. Anyways, it says they worshipped false gods such as Baalzebub and Dagon. First uh, Samuel 5, 1 through 4, 2 Kings 1, 2 and 3. At times, Israel joined in worshipping those gods. That is really interesting. Um... You know what? Let me just look that verse up that they cite there. It's 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 4. I was hoping I was going to be able to find where it says Baalzebub, because I've actually never heard that name before. So let me just check Kings, because it's not in, it's not in uh, the, the 1 Samuel verse. Uh, okay, so they said 2 Kings. 2 Kings 1, 2, and 3. Yeah, sure enough, it's in the Bible. I had no idea. It says, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. And this is from the NIV Bible. This isn't from Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. Fascinating. How about that? I did not know that that name was spelled that way in the Bible. I thought it was B-E-E-L-Z-E-B-U-B. Okay. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, so that was paragraph 14. You know, just a quick side note, Baalzebub and Beelzebub, they may be two different beings. I don't know. We're going to have to research that later. Okay, so this is 15. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, Jehovah allowed the Philistines to dominate his people for many years. They imposed oppressive restrictions on the Israelites and slaughtered many of them. When Israel, uh, I'm sorry, when Israel repented and returned to Jehovah, however, he rescued them. He raised up such men as Samson, Saul, and David to deliver his people. And as he foretold, I'm sorry, and as foretold by Ezekiel, the Philistines experienced furious punishments, quote unquote, when the Babylonians and later the Greeks invaded their land. So let me just read that first sentence again. It says, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, because of this, this country's unfaithfulness, Jehovah allowed the Philistines to dominate his people for many years. So Jehovah allowed this warring country to take over and enslave his people because he was upset with them. 
That is really messed up. Holy shit. Okay. So this next part, there's a little section here. It's on page 76 at the top. It says, Son of Man, key statements in the book of Ezekiel. More than 90 occurrences, it says Son of Man, apparently. And then it says, More than 90 times Ezekiel is referred to as Son of Man. Jehovah thus reminds him that even though he has received great privileges, he's only an earthling man. Significantly, in the gospel accounts, Jesus is referred to as Son of Man some 80 times, showing that he became completely human and was not an angel, merely materializing in human form. Huh. I think that's super interesting. I don't really trust their assessment of of what the Bible has to say, but it's interesting that they point that out. Okay, so that was 15. Uh, next is 16. It says, what lessons, and this is in italics and bolded, same as Philistines a minute ago, what lessons can we learn from Israel's dealings with the Philistines? Jehovah's modern-day people have faced opposition from some of the most powerful nations ever to dominate mankind. Unlike Israel, we've maintained a record of steadfast loyalty to Jehovah. Oh my God, have you? Even so, the enemies of pure worship, many, um, I'm sorry, the enemies of pure worship may at times seem to prevail. For instance, at the beginning of the 20th century, the government of the United States attempted to stop the work of Jehovah's people by sentencing those who took the lead in the organization to decades in prison. During the Second World War, the Nazi party in Germany tried to, uh, tried to wipe out God's people, imprisoning thousands and killing hundreds. After that war, the Soviet Union waged a sustained campaign against Jehovah's Witnesses, sending our brothers to labor camps or exiling them to remote regions of the land. That was a really long paragraph. Something I want to make note of here, they say... So, in the, pa- in the last paragraph, they're talking about how Israel was disloyal, or whatever. And for that reason, God let the uh the opposing nation take them over and dominate them and i don't know whatever enslave them whatever happened to them um and in this paragraph here they say unlike israel we have maintained a record of steadfast loyalty to jehovah i find that interesting why did they why are they so convinced that what's happening to them right now, you know, in Russia, being banned in Russia and all that stuff? Why are they so convinced that they're being loyal and suffering this anyways when they are linking the you know, the harmful events that happened to Israel in the past to their disloyalty? What about the United Nations scandal of Jehovah's Witnesses, where they've been talking about how the United Nations is evil, it's the great beast in the book of Revelation, you know, it's going to be the downfall of everybody and everything, and we should get as far away from it as we possibly can. And they were a member of the United Nations for like 10 years, 10 years from 1992 to 2001, I think. So actually, I, I don't remember. Maybe nine years. But a really long time. Come on, people. I mean, it, it, it was busted wide open by The Guardian. The Guardian reported this. And 
it was such a big deal that they tried to cover it up. They they really hammered down on the, you know, don't get on the internet and read opposing uh, views. Don't get on the internet and read about Jehovah's Witnesses unless you're on our website. And they sent letters around to all the congregations for the elders uh, that were basically telling the elders why they were a member of the UN and what to tell the members if they were asked about it. And their reasoning was, um, they said they wanted to use the UN libraries. That's what was in the letter. They said they wanted to be in, uh, registered as an NGO, non-government organization with the UN, because then they could use the UN libraries for research. But the thing is, there are depositories, book depositories, with the same research material that was at the UN library within 10 miles of that location. So it wasn't like they, it wasn't even a convenience thing. And even if it was a convenience thing, even if it was a convenience thing, even if it was more convenient for them to be a member of the UN for this re, for research purposes, they're, they are literally killing people by telling them not to take blood transfusions. They literally put people to death by doing things like that, by telling people not to say the Pledge of Allegiance in school in the 1930s when they knew very well people were going to be beaten to death over it, and they were. And here we are, they're somehow justifying this away. Oh, we can be a member of the the UN, no big deal. I mean, sure. The UN's evil, and it's going to be the downfall of society. And it's blasphemous by its very nature, because it's taking the place uh, that's rightfully Jehovah's. But it's no big deal. We can be a member of it, just to use their books, even though their books are literally like 10 blocks away anyways, and we don't have to be a member. It's just disgusting. So it it... It's a sick humor for me to read this, this sentence here. Unlike Israel, we have maintained a record of steadfast loyalty to Jehovah. No. No. You cannot say that. It's, it's just ridiculous. Okay. Uh, so that was paragraph 16. Got off on a little tangent there. Sorry about that. Here's paragraph 17. Governments may continue to ban the preaching work, imprison God's people, and even execute some of us. Should these events cause us to give in to fear or to lose faith? No, Jehovah will preserve his loyal people. Read Matthew 10, 28-31. Let me just read that real quick. Matthew 10, 28-31. It says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Of course, this is the NIV. The Jehovah's Witnesses Bible wouldn't say hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Interesting. You know, out of curiosity, I'm kind of wondering what the Jehovah's Witness Bible says there instead of hell. Let me just pull up the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible and see if I can look that verse up. Okay, so that was Matthew 10, 28 to 31. It says, And do not become fearful of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear them who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. 
Interesting. They say in Gehenna, not in hell. Huh. I wonder why they picked the word Gehenna there instead of hell. Well, anyways, there you go. It's different. Uh, I knew they wouldn't put hell in there. Because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. I'm sure most of you guys know that by now who are here. Okay, uh, so that was... Okay, that was halfway through 17. It said, Matthew, uh, read Matthew 10, 28-31. Now it says, We have already seen powerful, repressive governments disappear while Jehovah's people have continued to flourish. Soon, all human governments will share an outcome similar to that of the Philistines. They will be forced to know Jehovah. And like the Philistines, they will cease to exist. That is super interesting. I'm sure a lot of you guys know this too, but Jehovah's Witnesses in the ideal scenario for them is they would like to see all governments destroyed completely. And they'd like to see everybody ruled under them, basically. They'd like to see everybody on a local level going to a congregation, getting heavily integrated into the congregation, and the elders acting as investigators slash police. That's how they view them now. And they want to involve the police and secular authorities in their business as little as humanly possible right now. That's why you hear a lot of these things about child abuse cases not being reported. Because, well, they are reporting them. They're reporting them to the elders. I mean, those are the police, for all intents and purposes, to Jehovah's Witnesses. It's just the, the, the police, the real police, could investigate and get search warrants and DNA evidence and run it through labs and talk to witnesses and all of this stuff and get to the truth of the matter. We have Jehovah's Witnesses trying to get to the truth of the sin, not the crime. They aren't interested in jailing anybody. They're interested in kicking them, kicking them out of their community. Um, and that's, that's wrong. That's just wrong. That does not work. That's not how society works. They're trying to have it both ways. They both want to live in society, but not be a part of society. I mean, they say that openly. And it just doesn't work that way. So we're going to hammer away at them with this until they either straighten up or, or until they hemorrhage money and members. That's just how it's going to work. So anyway, okay. All right, so that was the end of 17. This is the next subheading. It's entitled, Abundant Wealth Gave No Lasting Protection. And uh, right just before we start paragraph 18, on the next page, there's actually a little section here. It says, uh, there are more than 50 occurrences of, we'll have to know that I am Jehovah, of that phrase. We'll have to know that I'm Jehovah. So under that, it says, more than 50 times, Ezekiel records God's statement that people will have to know that I am Jehovah, emphasizing that Jehovah is the only one worthy of receiving pure worship. Interesting. And then there's another one next to it says, 217 occurrences of Sovereign Lord Jehovah. The expression Sovereign Lord Jehovah appears 217 times, giving the divine name the prominence it deserves and stressing that all creation is subordinate to Jehovah. 
this is a very strange book. <laughs> okay, so that was uh, the last paragraph we read was 17. So here's 18. Uh, under the subheading, Abundant Wealth Gave No Lasting Protection. The ancient city of Tyre, and that's in bold and italics, sat at the center of one of the great commercial empires in the ancient world. To the west, her ships spun a web of trade routes that stretched across the Mediterranean Sea. To the east, Tyre's web extended along the overland routes that linked her to distant empires. For centuries, she added her, I'm sorry, for centuries, she added to her vast stockpile of wealth from these far-flung locations. Her merchants and tradesmen became so rich that they viewed themselves as princes. Okay, so they're just kind of talking about the city of Tyre. Um, I bet they're going to address the Bible prophecy about it falling and never being rebuilt. All right, here's 19. Under, uh, under kings David and Solomon, Israel had close ties with the inhabitants of Tyre, who supplied material and craftsmen to help build David's palace and later Solomon's temple. Tyre saw the nation of Israel at its best. Just think of the opportunity that thousands of Tyrians had to learn about pure worship, to get to know Jehovah and to observe firsthand the benefits that come from serving the true God. What benefits are we talking about here? Are we talking about complete submissiveness to an overlord organization? I don't know what benefits we're working with uh, that I couldn't get outside the organization. Okay, here's 20. Despite that opportunity, however, the inhabitants of Tyre remained steadfastly materialistic in their outlook. They did not follow the example of the powerful Canaanite city of Gibeon, G-I-B-E-O-N, Gibeon, whose inhabitants merely heard about Jehovah's great works and were moved to become his servants. In fact, the inhabitants of Tyre ended up opposing God's people and even sold some of them into slavery. Huh. Interesting. Um, the first sentence here in 20 says, Despite that opportunity, however, the inhabitants of Tyre remained steadfastly materialistic in their outlook. I've said this before, Jehovah's Witnesses are really, really against money or materialism of any kind, and I feel like you have to keep it in perspective. You don't want to get completely obsessed with objects or money or, or whatever, but there's nothing wrong with wanting more than you have. There's nothing wrong with wanting a better life than you have. I I had to learn that the hard way. I believed that being poor was the best thing. I believed that not going to college was the best thing for a long time. I now see that it's okay to like having money, having things, you know. And according to a scientific study, I I'm not I don't know. I'll see if I can find it at some point. I haven't looked at it in a long time. But it's something about, um, <clears throat> don't quote me on this, I believe it. there's a range of happiness, a range of money that makes you happy. So after a certain amount of money, you get diminishing returns. After, say, $70,000 a year, you, are, you start to get less happy. 
So at $80,000 a year, you're less happy than you were at $70,000. you are less happy than you were at $80,000 a year, that kind of thing. And there's a, a minimum amount of money that you need to be happy. You need to have basic living essentials to be happy. Um, you can find happiness here or there outside of money, but if you don't have what you need to live, then finding happiness is going to be really difficult. And I think the minimum, at least for my area, is like $30,000 a year or something like that. If you're not making that much, you don't have what you need. You don't have, you know, your dental bills paid. You don't have glasses you know, you, you, there are things that you need. You don't have your, do you can't go to the doctor because you don't have the money for it, that kind of thing. Things that you need. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses are just happy enough to say, just forget it all, throw it all to the wind, become a pioneer. Uh, don't even worry about college. You'll figure it out. Jehovah will provide. And that's bullshit. Took me a long time to figure that out. That is bullshit. It's harmful. It's hurt a lot of people. Okay, so that was... Um, yeah, okay, that was 20. That was paragraph 20. Next paragraph is 21. Let's give it a read. Though Ezekiel... I'm sorry, through Ezekiel, Jehovah said to those opposers, Here I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you, just as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and tear down her towers, and I will scrape away soil and make her a shining bare rock. Yeah, okay, so this is getting into that prophecy about Tyre being destroyed. For protection, the I think. For protection, the inhabitants of Tyre trusted in their riches, which they felt provided them with the same security as the island city's 150-foot-high uh, walls. They would have done well to pay attention to Solomon's warning. The wealth of the rich uh, is his fortified city. That's an oddly worded sentence. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. It is like a protective wall in his imagination. Okay, interesting. I guess that's Proverbs 18.11. Weird. Okay, so I guess this is... I'm, I'm assuming that this is getting into the prophecy about Tyre... Uh, being destroyed and, and never being rebuilt, so on and so forth. Okay, so this is paragraph 22. When the Babylonians and then the Greeks fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy, the inhabitants of Tyre discovered that the security offered both by the city's wealth and by her literal walls was imaginary. After destroying Jerusalem, the Babylonians waged a campaign against Tyre for 13 years. Then, in 332 BCE, now bear in mind, I, like I said, I don't trust any timelines Jehovah's Witnesses offer up, so take this with a grain of salt. Then, in 332 BCE, Alexander the Great fulfilled a remarkable aspect of prophecies conveyed by Ezekiel. His army scraped together the ruins of the mainland city of Tyre and threw the stones, woodwork, and soil into the water, building a path to reach the island city. Um, Alexander the Great is actually pretty well-established information in the history books, so this is probably pretty solid information as far as the dates go with Alexander the Great. Alexander breached the walls, plundered the city, killed thousands of soldiers and citizens, and sold tens of thousands more into slavery. 
The inhabitants of Tyre were forced to know Jehovah when they learned the hard way that abundant wealth gives no lasting protection. Yeah, so this is, once again, they're just hammering down on that propaganda campaign against having money, any money. Um, I mean, they're saying abundant wealth here, but it doesn't take them long. Just get them talking. It doesn't take them long to start maligning. Oh, God, I'm sick and my, my nose is stuffed up. Maligning. It doesn't take them long to start maligning uh, any money. So, okay, here's 23. What lesson, bold in italics again, can we learn from the inhabitants of Tyre? Never would we want to allow the deceptive power of riches to cause us to trust in material things, viewing them as a protective wall. We cannot slave for God and for riches. Read Matthew 6.24. Let me read it. Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's a pretty popular verse uh, that Jehovah's Witnesses offer up. I remember hearing that a lot in their propaganda campaign against money. And I'm sorry, like I said, you, you just need money. That's how it is. You need money to survive in this world, and you need to go to college to have a good chance of being solidly within that range of 30000 to 70000 a year. Your chances of, of hitting that mark is way better if you go to college. Ugh, don't even get me started on that. Jehovah's Witnesses talking bad about college constantly, and... A lot of Jehovah's Witnesses find themselves as window cleaners, which is a fine occupation. But you have a higher chance of hitting that range of money, 30000 to 70000 a year, if you're not a window cleaner. If you, are, if you go to college to get a degree in something and get a good job using that degree. Okay. So let's continue. It says, we cannot slave for God and for riches. Read Matthew 6, 24. Only those who serve Jehovah whole-souled are truly secure. Prophecies about the end of this present system will be fulfilled in every detail, just as surely as the prophecies against Tyre came true. At that time, those who trust in wealth will be forced to know Jehovah when he destroys this world's greedy, self-centered commercial system. More about... You know, they're, I don't know, they're just maligning the secular system. Uh, No matter what it was, they would hate it. No matter what system was in place, they would hate it because it's not Jehovah's system. It's not the theocracy that they want set up. In their ideal world, they would live on an island with no, they would, would just be them as the government. That's it. And everything would be run through the congregations. So, I mean, the original purpose of uh, of excommunication was everybody in the towns were religious. Everybody in the towns were Catholic, say. You know, the the grocery bagger and the everything. So the hope is that if they excommunicate you, You won't be able to buy food. You won't be able to do anything. You'll just wander out into the woods and die. That was the hope. That's the purpose of excommunication. That's the origin of it. And in an ideal world for Jehovah's Witnesses, that's what it would be again. 
You wouldn't be able to buy food. You wouldn't be able to get gas. Wouldn't be able to do anything. You would just wander off into the woods and die. Okay, so that was the end of 23. Next paragraph is, uh, I'm sorry, we're at the next subheading. It says, political power was a piece of straw. And this is paragraph 24. Uh, Before I get into it, though, I just wanted to glance down at the pictures below. Uh, On page 79, I think. Yeah, on page 79, there's a picture of what I assume is Tyre. And there are some people trying to, uh, I, I guess, some people busted through the wall holding shields and swords. And there are some Tyrians, I suppose, with shields and swords of their own, of their own, coming to meet the opposing army at the at the broken open wall. And there's a little uh, thing in the corner. It says, "Despite seemingly, I'm sorry, despite seeming entirely secure, Tyre was destroyed, just as Ezekiel had foretold." See paragraph 22. And then right below that, on page 80, there's another picture of a couple sitting on a couch in front of a TV that has um, an election update, I guess. And it's got a picture of, uh, you know, 54... It's a pie graph, or a pie chart. 54% red, 40% blue. It's got political candidates' mug shots, I guess. Just their faces there on each side. Uh, this is them basically saying we shouldn't be getting involved in secular politics, to say the least. And it's showing basically the two people watching the election update or whatever. It's, it's implying that they're a married couple and that they're in disagreement. I mean, that's, that's the impression I'm getting from the picture here. Okay, so let's give, uh, let's give 24 a read. From before the days of Joseph to the time when the Babylonians marched on Jerusalem, Egypt, that's in italics and bold again, wielded considerable political influence in the region of the Promised Land. Her ancient roots may have made her appear to be stable, like an old growth tree. But when compared with Jehovah, she was feeble, no stronger than a piece of straw. Okay, interesting. Not sure I really get the implications of that. Chapter. Uh, God, I'm still mixing those damn things up. Not sure I get the implication of that paragraph yet. Uh, let's just continue on and see if it gives us more information. This is 25. Apostate King Zedekiah did not recognize that about Egypt. Apostate King Zedekiah. Huh. Through the prophet Jeremiah, Jehovah had urged Zedekiah to submit to the king of Babylon. Zedekiah even took an oath in Jehovah's name not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, but then he ignored Jehovah's direction, broke his oath to Nebuchadnezzar, and appealed to Egypt for help in his fight against the Babylonians. However, the Israelites who relied on the political might of Egypt brought great harm to themselves. As for Egypt, she may have appeared to be as formidable as a great sea monster. But Jehovah said, He would deal with her in the same way that hunters capture Nile crocodiles. He would put hooks, um, I'm sorry, he would put hooks in her jaws and draw her toward destruction. He did so when he sent the Babylonians to conquer that ancient land. Interesting. And um, FYI, this is the page. Now we're on the page 
that has the, I guess, the fighting couple over election update or whatever. Um, so anyway, okay. So that was 25. Uh, I think there are 30 paragraphs in here. Uh, yeah. Okay, let's give uh, 26 a read. What became of unfaithful Zedekiah? Because rebel. I'm sorry, because he rebelled against Jehovah, Ezekiel foretold that this wicked chieftain would lose his crown and that his rulership would end in ruin. But Ezekiel also gave hope. Jehovah had him foretell that a king in the royal line, one who had the legal right, would claim the throne. In the next chapter of this publication, we will see who this proved to be. Okay. All right, so that was 26. Let's give 27 a read. What lesson, that's in bold and italics again, can we learn from Israel's interaction with Egypt? Jehovah's people today need to avoid putting their trust in political powers, thinking that such powers will provide lasting security. Even in our thoughts, we need to remain no part of the world. The political system may seem strong, but like ancient Egypt, it is as fragile as a piece of straw. How how short-sighted it would be to invest our hope in mortal humans rather than in the almighty sovereign of the universe. Read Psalm 146, 3-6. That is interesting. Now we're getting into the meaning, that underlying meaning of, uh, of that picture at the top of the page. Of the, you know, the election update picture. Damn this being sick thing. I hate this. So now we're getting into the meaning of it. They said, Jehovah's people today need to avoid putting their trust in political powers, thinking that such powers will provide lasting security. Even in our thoughts, we need to remain no part of the world. They are pretty big on thought crimes in this religion. You have to keep your thoughts in line, and that will ref- uh, that will be reflected in your actions, basically, is how they feel about it. It gets really, really crazy. Um, but yeah, they, they're, so they're, basically they're saying, sure, you're not going to involve yourself in politics, obviously. I mean, that would be just awful. You'd get disfellowshipped for that. But a step past that, We don't just want you to get involved in politics. We don't just want you to not watch political debates or, you know, uh, political updates or any of that stuff. We don't want you to think about this stuff. We don't want you to take a side. We don't want you to think about who's better, Trump or Hillary. Uh, That is one thing that I got involved in pretty much immediately after I woke up from Jehovah's Witnesses, was uh, politics. I started celebrating Christmas heavily, and I got involved in politics because I wasn't allowed to when I was in it. And as a result, I, I have pretty strong political views, but I try to apply the same rational thinking to politics as I do to religion. Which is honestly hard to do because a lot of the time with religion, there are facts to be had. It's just not factual to think that Noah's flood actually happened. That is not factual. 
it is a fact that evolution takes place. We can watch it happen in a lab. We can watch the processes take place in a lab. There are facts to be had here. But in politics, it's a lot more opinion-based. Now, there are facts involved with politics, too. Uh, For example, we can look at a country that has employed full communism and see how it went for them. We can look at a country who employs full socialism and see how it goes for them. And we can decide if we want that or not. The problem is that a lot of these terms, communism and socialism and capitalism and all that stuff, those terms are maligned by each side. So there's a propaganda campaign against communism in the U.S., or there was back in the 80s and the 90s, and it's still kind of there now, not as much. And that means absolutely anything associated with communism is now evil. Anything. If you say that's a communist ideal, suddenly everybody just clams up and they're like, oh, it's not going to work then, I guess. Uh, And it's the same with socialism. You know, that stigma is kind of breaking now. But there are parts of everything that I feel that we can take and figure out. We need to figure out what works and what doesn't work scientifically. Not opinion-based. We need to know. You know, we need to look at statistics and figure out what's best statistically and employ those things. I mean, we can look at other countries around the world and, and, and look at what they're doing and try some of it out. I mean, the countries that are doing the best, the countries with the highest happiness rating, the countries with the highest IQs and and all of that stuff with the the happiest people, the most educated people in the world. Find those countries, figure out what they're doing, figure out what's causing those results and see if we can employ it too. And look at all the, you know, this racial divide. Let's look at other countries who have overcome their racial division, figure out how they did it. Drop the socialism name. Drop the communism name. Drop the capitalism name. Forget it. Forget the words. Don't get hung up on words. Let's just figure out what they're doing right and put it into practice here. That's, that's what I say. Oh, my God. You can, I'm sure you guys can hear me sniffing over here. It's awful. Okay, let's see. Where was I? Um, I think I was on... Yeah, okay. So that was paragraph 27. Uh, Next subheading is paragraph uh, 28. Subheading is titled, The Nations Will Have to Know. Uh, Okay, so here's 28. Several times in the book of Ezekiel, Jehovah states that the nations, quote, will have to know that I am Jehovah, unquote. And I think if if you remember up a little bit, they cited that, yeah, they cited that on page uh, 77 is uh, one of the phrases that's mentioned like over 50 times or something in the book of Ezekiel. So it says, Jehovah states the nations will have to know that I am Jehovah. Those words certainly came true in ancient times when Jehovah executed judgment on the enemies of his people, but they will have a greater fulfillment in our day. In what way? Okay, here's, so that was 28. Here's 29. Like God's people in ancient times, we're surrounded by nations that consider us to be, def- uh, to be as defenseless as a lone sheep. 
As will be discussed in chapter 17 and 18 of this publication, the nations will soon launch a vicious all-out attack on God's people. But when they do, they will be taught the meaning of real power. Oh my God, this is crazy. They will be forced to know Jehovah, to recognize his, his sovereignty. Uh, sexually? When he destroys them at the Battle of Armageddon. This is getting weird. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what they what they think about uh, the end times and what's going to happen, how it's going to play out. Okay, so that was 29. Here's 30. By contrast, Jehovah will keep us safe, and he will bless us. Why? Because we have taken the opportunity now to prove that we know Jehovah by trusting in him, by obeying him, and by giving him the pure worship he deserves. Read Ezekiel 28:26. Okay, let's, let's read it. All right, that was Ezekiel 28:26. It says, They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety and I will inflict punishment on all their neighbors who maligned them. They will know that I am the Lord their God. I'm sure it says they will know that I am the Lord Jehovah or some, something like that in their translation. Oh, okay, that was pretty interesting. That's actually the end of the chapter. Then we have some questions here at the end. It says, your place in pure worship. So I guess these questions are kind of intended to, I guess, review the chapter, give you an idea of what was said, what was talked about. So this is uh, question number one. Why should it not surprise us if family members oppose our worship of Jehovah? And of course, they've got this persecution complex about how if they weren't opposed, then they wouldn't have the truth. Uh, so here's the second question. About what should we remain confident, even if powerful governments persecute us? And I assume that the answer they're looking for there is they should remain confident that Jehovah will kill everybody except for them. I don't know. Then number three, what lesson did you learn from the inhabitants of Tyre? Of course, Tyre was destroyed because they loved money, so they're saying... I mean, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. So they're saying that, uh, you know, the lesson that you can learn is don't be materialistic. Don't want money, I guess. And then number four, how can uh, how can you show that you know Jehovah? I don't even know the answer to that. It's kind of strange. What if I could show that I know Jehovah to them? What if I could prove to them that I know Jehovah and then reveal that I'm an atheist? Oh, that would just... That would send him into a tailspin. So yeah, uh, that's the end of the chapter. And then on the on the next page, actually the page, the technically the last page of the chapter, it's a picture of a mountain over a lake. It's really nice. It's a really nice picture, actually. Uh, actually, this is the end of the section. So this is the end of section two. The next section is section three, chapter eight. Yeah, that was a pretty interesting read. Had a lot of interesting stuff in it. I was really hoping they were going to call some countries out by name, like Russia, because I heard that they did that in this book, but we haven't gotten there yet. We're, we'll get there. Just give it some time. But yeah, I appreciate you guys coming and uh, giving this a listen and ignoring my stuffy nose. Thanks for coming, guys.